I'm Linda Yu. I'm a fellow in economics at St. Edmund Hall University of Oxford. I'm an economist and actually also a lawyer by training, but I teach economics at the university. I uh, have a couple of recent books. Um, one of them is Macroeconomics, an undergraduate uh, textbook, uh, which will soon need to be updated given the events of <laughs> the past year. Um, and another book which is coming out next year called The Law and Economics of Globalization uh, to look at the ways in which the global economy has been changed in both economic and legal terms over the last few years. My name is Jonathan Mickey. I'm also an economist uh, by training, um, although I'm now Director of Oxford University's Department for Continuing Education, which does a range of part-time courses, including online courses, and in fact our most popular online courses on the global economy by Dr Linda Yu. And I'm also president of Kellogg College, my most recent book's uh, handbook on globalisation. Well, I think 2018 uh, has been a tremendous year in terms of uh, economic developments. One of the things perhaps that we ought to have a think about is how we got here um, in terms of the financial crisis. So we know at some point last year, around last summer, the subprime mortgage crisis in the United States really began to take hold. And the most obvious manifestation was, of course, the failure of Northern Rock, which generated the first bank run on a British bank in about a century. Since then, of course, things have only gone from bad to worse. Uh, in March of this year, we know that uh, the failure of Bear Stearns, which was forcibly sold to J.P. Morgan Chase, essentially marked the start of the prospect of systemic banking sector failure. And this culminated with the collapse of Lehman Brothers on September the 15th. And that roughly brings us to where we are today in terms of the financial crisis. And I should probably also say we know it's not just the financial crisis in the banking sector. We also know this has generated what's been called the credit crunch, where we're just there is just not lending coming out of the banking sector now, which has real implications for mortgages, for business lending, for uh, keeping uh, individuals and companies going. And, uh, and that, I'm afraid, is the challenge that we face now, along with uh, the real economy downturn. Yes, I'd agree with that. I think the finger of blame for the current crisis, though, has to be also put at the systematic deregulation uh, during the 1980s and 1990s, removing the requirements on, on banks to hold proper levels of reserves and so on. I mean, for example, Northern Rock was a successful building society, as with the, the other building societies in Britain, which were very sensible institutions where people put their money in to, to save and then drew out money to, to buy their houses. And the demutualization of the building societies, I think, was... Uh, totally unjustified by any economic or, or moral <laughs> argument I and mean, it profited uh, the current members of the building societies who managed to cash in um, the value which had been built up over over years and, and decades and of course profited the individual um, banks and consultants who were, who were giving advice. I think if it hadn't been for that deregulation and demutualization, the there wouldn't have been the, the build-up of such an unsustainable credit-fueled boom, which led to, to this big bust. 
I think it's certainly the end of Wall Street as we know it and a British equivalent though I'm not quite sure what that is perhaps the uh, the city will not look the same again I've always found that it's a very unusual circle we've we've drawn between the 1930s and now because one of the big parallels with this crisis is that ooh, this looks like the Great Depression banking sector failures followed by real economy downturn global recession and one of the interesting things which of course came out of the Great Depression was the Glass-Steagall Act in the United States, what this did was it safeguarded retail deposits away from investment banking functions. It essentially separated the two. It was in many ways the birth of uh, Wall Street in the sense of having investment banks which are fueled not by deposits but by overnight lending, short-term lending on overnight markets, the wholesale money market. And, of course, with deregulation in the 80s and 90s, Wall Street really flourished, and again the equivalent in the city really flourished on the back of, uh, on, of this. And one of the things which is clearly coming about now is that these investment banks no longer exist. The most prominent ones, Goldman Sachs, uh, Morgan Stanley, they've now become normal bank holding companies and uh, this is because of the crisis and it's also because in 1999 the Glass-Steagall Act was abolished essentially by legislation in the United States meaning that these banks could grow even bigger including taking on some retail banking functions. So we have these gigantic banks and um, I think what, uh, what, what then happened was that when they began to have difficulty, we were looking at systemic banking failure which could threaten the entire credit system, that institutional safeguard separating the investment banking's uh, bankers' more risky endeavors were now not separate from the entire banking system. So in that sense, I suppose, the talk now of trying to do something about the crisis, I think, leads us to rethink what's happened to this institutional structure or really over the last century. Yes, I think that's right, and I think the point about systemic um, implications of what's happened is very important, because by that it means that um, the financial sector, the banking system, is quite different from other sectors, um, high street shops or car sales uh, warehouses, where if one company goes bankrupt it may not matter, others can, can take up the uh, business, whereas with the financial sector, um, if banks go bankrupt it can have a, an effect on the whole um, economic system which is, of course, why um, both the British and the American governments have stepped in um, to save banks, not so much because that particular company needed to be saved, but if the banks had been allowed to go under and AIG insurance company in America, it would have had knock-on effects on the, the uh, wider system. And so the, the problem is we've had um, all this sort of speculation and so-called innovation, you know, invention of new financial um, products to be traded around the world, where the... Um, the gains from inventing these new products and selling them on have led to huge increases in the, the personal bonuses being uh, um, earned by the, the speculators. The problem is that, in theory, uh, one might think, well, if an individual or a company is successful, they can profit from it. If they're unsuccessful, um, they'll lose out, the, the company will go bankrupt, uh, and so on. In this case, where there's these systematic implications of failure. Governments think they, they're not able to let the, the companies go bankrupt. So in effect, the, the gains have been um, privatised, going to the individuals and companies privately, but the risks have been socialised 
basically the taxpayer, which is why the taxpayers having to, to pick up the tab now to the tune of tens of billions or even more. Very much so. I think um, I mean, quite a lot of the driver, as we know from what the, the British government keeps saying, is this crisis came from the United States. Um, but I think there is something also about the way that um, the British banking financial sector has developed um, that makes it a much more homegrown problem. And I think by, uh, by recognising the problem, perhaps we might be able to do slightly more in terms of resolving the crisis. Um, we know that these massive bailout packages of banks in the US and the UK have been premised on a few principles. One is recapitalization. The British government came upon this much more quickly than the American government. Two is liquidity. Um, liquidity is, of course, the fact that as these banks um, lose market value, as they write down these uh, toxic debts or troubled assets, they are essentially short of liquidity. And thirdly, the government has extended to them guarantees of lending originating now. So this is to try to ensure the credit crunch doesn't end up resulting in lots of uh, corporate uh, bankruptcies and mortgage foreclosures. So these are the steps taken so far by the British government. And the Americans were slightly different. They initially didn't want to recapitalize. They were more intent on buying up the, the troubled assets, the so-called TARP plan. But um, they famously did a U-turn on this, and they decided not to buy up the toxic debts. And that was that was a bit surprising, I think, for markets. But I suppose the uh, <laughs> the big question now is, is that something the British and the American governments are going to have to look seriously at? Because despite a £50 billion recapitalization plan and, and, and nearly unlimited liquidity extended to the banking system, the banks say they're not in a position to lend. They are still shoring up their balance sheets. So what that's suggesting is they still have write-downs to come from the troubled assets. What we have seen so far may only be write-downs of the so-called credit derivatives. So these are the hedging instruments. But there's also collateralized debt obligations. So in other words, more generally securitized assets. So assets which are traded on the basis of subprime mortgages or buy-to-let mortgages, which then become securitized and traded as debt instruments, those are still out there off balance sheet. And if those are not written down by the banks or declared, then banks themselves take whatever capital and liquidity there is. They continue to shore up their balance sheets. They refuse to lend. And we are still in a credit crunch despite the billions being poured into the credit system. So the current debate about whether or not the government should give the banks even more money to resolve the credit crunch, I think, uh, slightly misses the key point, which is, what is going to happen to these troubled assets? We know that keeping them on the books is problematic. That's what Japan essentially did in the early 1990s. They didn't really remove them from the balance sheets of the banks, hoping that the banks could work it through in a kind of rescue plan. But we know that didn't work very well. Um, so I suppose for me, that would be the big uh, challenge at the moment, is will the British government now do what TARP was originally intended to do, force the banks uh, to write down these um, bad debts, and especially if they own majority shares in lots of these banks, like Royal Bank of Scotland, um, perhaps uh, they are in a position to, to do that, or perhaps they're not. Yes, that's right. I mean, um, Gordon Brown, British Prime Minister, famously said that the 
late touch regulation that they've been so keen to, to boast about over the last few years of the, the boom. The light touch regulation wasn't soft touch regulation, but actually I think now we can see that it precisely was soft touch regulation because unlike in the previous regulated era where banks and, and financial institutions were required to hold a certain um, proportion of, of assets to back up lending they were doing, the banks and financial institutions were in effect able to just create this, this new money um, themselves without the, the, the regulator, the Financial Service Authority, checking that they really were genuine assets. They were just put on the, um, the balance sheets despite the fact that we now see actually they were, they were quite spurious. Mm, yeah, I think, I mean, as a lawyer, I'm always slightly sympathetic to regulation being behind markets, but I'm not sympathetic to regulators not asking the hard questions. Light touch regulation doesn't mean no regulation. It means that if something looks slightly too good to be true, it probably is. Um, so I think, I, I, I don't think we're through the financial crisis at all, and I think that needs to be dealt with. And I also think we need to deal with the real economy effects because one of the worst things that can happen is to have this kind of asset bubble bursting or financial crisis and then have the government not deal with the effects in the real economy. That is the lesson of the Great Depression. By doing policy too late, a financial sector um, problem becomes a real economy problem. And I know the uh, British government has undertaken now to borrow a record amount of debt to try and get us out of the uh, of the recession, which is inevitable. And uh, the pre-budget report has the government spending borrowing up to something like a trillion pounds over the next few years with national debt to GDP ratio um, in 2013 predicted to peak at some 57% of GDP. Now, I originally didn't think this was too bad because the OECD average debt to GDP ratio was 60%. But I've decided I've changed my mind a little bit because it still is just because other countries like Italy have debt to GDP ratios of over 100%, it doesn't mean it's a good thing. And, and uh, so I think um, I'm still optimistic they can bring it down because they're nowhere near Japan levels, which is something like. 200% of, of GDP at the moment. But I think uh, what all this borrowing is intended to do, of course, is to try to get the real economy back on track. And the fiscal stimulus part, of course, is centered on a few things. There are obvious candidates like uh, cutting taxes, or in the case of the PBR, tax credits, and it's being given to the very poor and the elderly. Um, there's also, of course, the VAT cutting measure, which is intended to put money into consumer pockets straight away. And the plan, in a sense, for VAT has come under quite a bit of criticism because most people think a 2.5% cut in VAT is really not anything to, uh, to, uh, to write home about. Um, what I thought was slightly um, good about the plan was that... Um, it's announced to last for a year. So if you have a major purchase that you may be thinking of making, you may want to make it, say, in 2009 instead of 2010, when VAT goes back up to 17.5%. Um, so that, <laughs> that being said, I still think the VAT cut is probably on the small side. Um, so I'm left to worrying that the stimulus um, uh, may be less... Uh, less than meets the eye and we're taking on a whole lot of debt to pay for it. Yes, I mean there are a number of important issues there, aren't there? I mean the the key sort of economic one in 
going back to economic theory and Keynes's contribution in the nineteen thirties when they were in that last big slump as to to what policy should be. Um, the key economic question is if the government um, borrows an extra billion, sorry, increases borrowing by by a billion to spend, what effect will that have on on the economy? And obviously, if it has no effect, then it's a it's a um, worthless policy, and the the uh, level of debt to um, national income will rise. However, if the economy is in recession, there are unemployed resources, idle factories, unemployed uh, works, and so on. The government borrows a, a billion pounds and spends it to build bridges and roads, as Barack Obama's uh, talking about, um, and that uh, that uh, boosts the economy by say two billion pounds. Then actually, the the effect is to reduce the the debt to national income ratio. So it's it's very difficult, you know, as economists or or policy analysts to know um, beforehand what the effect of increasing borrowing will be on the ratio of borrowing to national income. The the key question then is to try to target the the money that you borrow in ways that will actually boost national income, and so will will reduce the borrowing to national income level uh, and so then we come to yeah, the question of, of whether cutting VAT uh, was the best way of doing that and I, th- I think it, it is a difficult question but um, I would agree I think ironically that, that probably cutting VAT by two and a half percentage points from 17.5 to 15% probably just wasn't enough to make enough of a difference particularly in the, the current climate I've just come back from an afternoon Christmas shopping where prices have been slashed by 20% 30% well obviously 50% in Woolworths but even in other shops where successful shops prices have been slashed by 20% or so the two and a half percent may not make much of a difference plus there's a lot of organizations where the, the um, cut doesn't really make any difference because they pass the VAT on anyway on top of that the, there's a lot of extra work uh, and effort and cost put onto businesses, including small businesses, change all their prices and then they have to change more back in, in a year's time and so on. So I, I think perhaps if it had been larger, you know, 5% cut, then it would have been worth all the hassle of doing it. As it was, perhaps they would have been better using that $12 billion or so on um, direct intervention measures as as uh, is being talked about more in the States. But also, as the, the rest of the package um, did I mean they, they did bring forward winter fuel payments to, to pensioners and, and so on, which um, probably will have a bigger and better impact than the VAT cut itself. The VAT threshold is quite interesting because the EU requires VAT to not fall below fifteen percent. So I think in a sense it kind of leads us to think about um, the kind of spillovers at the European level because it's certainly not just the UK which is concerned about the stimulus, it's also, you know, efforts have been put forward at the European Union level um, to try and do this. And I think the economic rationale for it is quite good. And this is something that the UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown has certainly advocated, which is when you boost your own economy, part of that spending goes on to imports. So that actually benefits the country which sells to you. If all countries coordinated their fiscal stimulus and their loose monetary policy, cutting interest rates, boosting their economy, then that spending would also fall into the uh, your exports. And so you get this nice um, coordinated fiscal and monetary policy boosts to these different countries, which of course has a much larger effect than if countries were to do this in isolation. I think one of the interesting facets about state ownership, of which there are many, <laughs> of the banking system, 
is um, does it is it going to affect um, the bank's lending practices? Um, we're very concerned about that because we don't want the credit crunch to result in um, in bankruptcies if we can afford it of good companies. But it looks as if the government's taking an arm's length view on this. So even though they may be a majority shareholder, for instance, in uh, commercial banks, um, they're essentially allowing banks to operate on a commercial basis. That, of course, meant that even though the government has asked the banks to restore lending to 2007 levels, the actual amount of lending, particularly to businesses, hasn't really picked up. And that's why the current debate about um, banks wanting more money in order to do this. And I think the real concern here is clearly what happens um, to um, businesses in short um, supply, uh, you know, needing liquidity, needing credit. So I think that the real concern here is what happens to businesses which um, just need that extra bit of credit to get them through certain periods. Um, for instance, I heard that the Queen's Tailor has had to declare bankruptcy um, because of the credit crunch. Uh, but I suppose the big headline news item of this time is Woolies, Woolworths, shutting down after 98 years. Although I suppose I would question whether or not it's a victim of the credit crunch or whether there was something more fundamental with um, Woolworths brand and shops that has caused it to uh, go into, well, essentially go under. Yes, I mean, there is an argument that uh, economic slumps and even crises are, are a necessary part of capitalist development and it's good because it can wipe out the, the inefficient uh, firms and so on um, and, and uh, help subsequent recovery. I mean, the problem with that argument is if you look at the, the companies that, that do go bankrupt, um, in recessions, there are some. Maybe it's unfair to pick on Woolworths, but there, there are some that you think, well, maybe they they um, just weren't very successful in dynamic uh, companies. But there are thousands of others you can see which are very successful, potentially um, dynamic companies, but who who just had credit withdrawn and and uh, collapsed for for no good reason would have probably gone on to be very successful companies. So it's a, it's a very costly process. Um, there's plenty of, of perfectly good firms. Um, are just bankrupted because overdraft facilities are withdrawn or credit which normally would be provided um, isn't. And it is strange that the government's spent so much of our taxpayers' money buying shares in the banks to the extent that they're in effect nationalised, the majority owned. Um, They complain on television that the banks aren't behaving properly and yet they're the owners and they're not telling the banks uh, what to do or they're not running the banks in in the... um, country's interests. And it's not as if uh, the public sector doesn't have experience of running um, financial institutions and banks as well as other organisations and obviously universities, local authorities, um, hospital, the NHS is Europe's largest big employer, all very well well um, managed and run in the public sector. But also the Bank of England was nationalised in the 1940s and has been, been run in the public sector uh, since. And there's plenty of good examples of, of public sector banks in Britain and elsewhere um, providing credit for for industry, and I, I think that's what um, the government should be doing with the banks that they now do own, making sure that they they do people people on the board to ask the difficult questions, which, uh, as we know, is part of the problem of why we got here in the first place. That the the financial service authority, the regulator, wasn't asking those difficult questions. There are plenty of people government could put in onto the boards of the banks to ask those questions and to ensure that credit is provided to, to companies for productive use in the UK economy as opposed to for 
unsustainable speculation, which has uh, happened over the last few years. I worry that if they don't, we could see unemployment rise dramatically as the economy goes deeper into recession. The government's um, projections for its budget and for its spending in the economy is that the UK economy will turn around in the second half of 2009. If their stimulus package um, turns out to be less than it is, if the global picture is worse than it is, if our major export destinations are also um, in a worse slump than we thought that we would be, we may well see the economic recovery take longer than the next six months, and you could see unemployment beginning to rival uh, the levels we saw in the early 1990s recession, for instance, and certainly in earlier periods. So at the moment, um, unemployment is under 2 million. It still looks vaguely cyclical, but if this downturn continues and bankruptcies increase in the corporate sector and people get laid off and we could see unemployment rise to say 3 million and then we're really looking at um, um, some of the most severe downturns the UK economy has had. There is another avenue for uh, resolving a part of the credit crunch or at least rescuing companies, although this is I suppose slightly tricky. Um, it's probably best explained by analogy. After the Asian financial crisis, Southeast Asia, healthy economies underwent tremendous falls in output and essentially their economies went into free fall. Lots of good companies there had no access to credit and they were just suffering from the downturn. Mergers and acquisitions, M&A activity rose during that period because Western multinational corporations swooped in and bought the good deals, cheap assets on sale. Can this work in reverse? Can you get companies from emerging economies to turn around and buy up Western companies? It's an avenue, although um, I, I don't see, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they have the kinds of multinationals of sufficient scale to buy up the size of the Western companies that we're talking about. Um, but I wouldn't rule out, um, for instance, companies coming from the developing world like China or the Middle East, at least buying equity stakes in Western institutions. Um, we have certainly um, seen that. And I'm not just talking about football clubs like Manchester <laughs> City. <laughs> yes, I mean, the, the danger of, of being stuck in long-term recession and unemployment rising and sticking there I mean, would take us back to the 1930s, both in terms of economic history and, and sort of analysis, because it's been interesting the way Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, has been uh, rediscovered in the, the media and a bit by politicians, but because of this uh, policy of, of borrowing to try to um, stave off uh, recession, which is indeed one of the things Keynes said um, you could do, but, but his more f fundamental point was just that the, the capitalist economic system isn't self-writing, it's just not true what the textbooks of the day said, that interest rates automatically fall to a, a point at, at which um, full employment will be restored, and his argument was that you could indeed get stuck in, in long-term recession with, with high unemployment. And so I think that does need to be taken seriously. I mean, it's interesting with interest rates. I mean, and again, this really proves Keynes's point because interest rates now have been um, cut, thankfully, to, to already quite low levels, whereas it's not clear they can be cut much further. So in the States, they're already down to, to 1%. Um, but, it, but it's interesting as well that the last few years, the, the UK government's boasted about uh, the great economic policy decision they took to hand over responsibility for interest rates to the Bank of England um, rather than government having responsibility and that was applauded sort of by the, 
the media for all these last decade or more when, when looking back actually there's very little to do <laughs> it was pretty obvious what should be um, done to interest rates uh, um, we could have done it just as well uh, in this room and the, the one time it came to a, a difficult decision about what to do the bank of England completely blew it and kept interest rates far too high over the last few months before finally um, cutting them now at the, the last minute possibly too late yeah, I mean, I think I, I mean, I agree. I mean, central bank independence and inflation targeting became really the in vogue since actually New Zealand was the first country that adopted it um, in the early 1990s, and then it sort of spread through the developed world. And it was always very difficult to know whether or not the independence of the central bank was responsible for the nice decade of strong growth, low inflation, low interest rates, or whether or not it was just a very benign global environment. And I'm afraid we sort of now know the answer. <laughs> but I suspect the main problem with this crisis was that by making the central bank independent, divesting the regulatory role that the central bank usually serves, as well as being the lender of last resort in the setting monetary policy, divesting these roles into a triumvirate of the FSA, the Financial Services Authority, the uniform regulator in the UK, the Treasury, and then the Bank of England, nobody was in charge when uh, a crisis erupted, and I think that's been quite a painful lesson. And, um, and I certainly agree with the point of uh, low interest rates and deflation, because um, <laughs> given we do have uh, a Bank of England <laughs> who is now cutting interest rates to try and stave off this um, recession, dramatic cuts, I mean, 1.5% cut, 1% cut, these are cuts of the like we have not seen in decades. We are now down to interest rates of 2%. And this is the 1951 level. This is historically extremely low. The US is 1% and the ECB is just above um, the UK. Um, and Japan is down to zero interest rates again. Um, so you're essentially looking at rich countries simultaneously going into a recession and simultaneously suffering from possible uh, deflation. Deflation, believe it or not, before the 1970s wasn't actually a concern. <laughs> And neither was inflation, <laughs> because before the 1970s, inflation and deflation was just that price cycle. Price rises, price falls with the economic cycle. But then the shocks of the 1970s changed our model, made us fixated on inflation. But if you look outside the rich world, um, say in the Asian financial crisis, East Asia had periods of deflation. China had negative price prices for two years, 1998 to 1999. It just goes with the decline in the economic cycle. Um, so not every deflation episode ends up in a liquidity trap, as outlined by Keynes, which is what Japan was in in the 1990s, where interest rates had no effect whatsoever on the economy. So you were essentially you were in this um, trap, a liquidity trap. Um, so we don't have to be Japan. We could be more like, uh, say, for instance, you know, East Asia, during the crisis, but the difficulty for policymakers is traversing that line, cutting interest rates to stimulate the economy, but not cutting them uh, so low without sorting out the what's called the monetary transmission mechanism, the process by which the interest rate translates into commercial banking and then funding for the corporate sector. If you don't sort that out, which is what Japan didn't do, then cutting interest rates could have no effect and you end up getting yourself into a deflationary trap. Um, so long as they're aware of that, I'm, I'm hopeful they can traverse it. Um, and I suppose this actually brings us back to the start of the discussion, is one of the reasons why the monetary transmission mechanism is clogged um, at the moment is because the banks don't lend, probably because they have troubled assets on their books.
So I think to get to the heart of the problem would be crucial before using a, just using interest rates um, and wondering why a 250 basis point cut over the last two months in the UK hasn't stimulated lending. Yes, that's right. I mean, having very low interest rates is sometimes um, described as, as uh, pushing on a piece of string and wondering why nothing's happening at, at, the, other, uh, at the other end. I mean, it, it's argued that having very low interest rates is no good if, if no one wants to borrow. We've got the additional problem at the moment that although we've got low interest rates, even where companies do want to borrow, the money's not being made available to them at those interest rates. It's no good having low interest rates if, if the borrowings are not being made available. So that's one problem. And then the other problem is this pushing on a piece of string um, point that there's no point, there's no, it's no good having low interest rates and even availability of credit if there are no companies out there who are confident enough that the economy is going to pick up and growth restore in order to invest now to start producing more goods and services. If people think that the economy is going to continue in a, in a downward spiral, then that can be um, self-fulfilling, which again comes back to the point about the, the um, budgetary uh, impetus the government tried to give the economy, which they might have to repeat again in a, in a couple of months' time. The key thing is to um, be seen to be doing things which will stimulate the, the economy so that other companies will then start increasing their investment in order to, to produce, to supply the, the companies that they think will be um, demanding more inputs as the, the economy picks up. I mean, that's the sort of Barack Obama point about building bridges and so on. Then the, the companies that uh, um, provide parts for, for bridge building will, will be more confident about uh, investing and keeping, uh, keeping in production. I think the US analogy is actually quite a good one in many ways because the US had already done a fiscal stimulus package which was worth just over 1% of US GDP, which is considerable, but is clearly not enough. Um, so the UK has just put forward this fiscal stimulus packages of a similar magnitude, but is it going to have to do another one? The US is certainly contemplating another one. While one can argue the US went into a recession in December 2007, and so their, their recession is already longer um, than what it is for European countries, but I certainly wouldn't rest my laurels on that point. And instead, I think that the, uh, the plans that Barack Obama has put forward to create some 2.5 million jobs, and especially to push green investment, so a Green New Deal, as has been described, formulating a low-carbon economy, um, this kind of spending tends to be quite good for employment, and uh, as Jonathan said, quite good for businesses, um, if it can be done quickly enough to turn the economy around and of course secondly if it's needed and if it's green I would argue it's probably more likely to be needed because one of the other problems in Japan is that they tried this but they built infrastructure which was uh, which was unneeded they have very good infrastructure in Japan but for the UK certainly investment in infrastructure in transportation is very much needed and um, hopefully uh, perhaps there would be more of a push for the next stimulus uh, to go after a, an Obama-type plan and begin to modernise some of the uh, very old infrastructure in Britain, which could certainly use that kind of investment. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right and extremely important. I mean, I would say it would be worth the government bringing forward now a major package, but 100% devoted to a, a Green New Deal. And that's important for a number of um, reasons. I mean, all the ones that, that Linda's just said, but, but also the, the key point... Um, to get out of recession is that consumers and, and crucially businesses really believe that growth will pick up next year, the year after that and the year after that and so that they start um, raising their investment so that they, they won't um, lose out. 
and looking at economic history over the, the long run, 100 years or, or so, I mean, there, are, there are short booms and slumps um, every few years, but also the, the do um, seem to be quite long periods of, of economic expansion, 20, 30 years, and then, then sometimes downtown. And, and the long periods of economic expansion, I think it's been argued quite convincingly, tend to um, cluster around a, a series of, of uh, major innovations and products, like the motor car and uh, uh, associated uh, goods in the, the 1950s and 60s and so on. And looking over the next sort of 10, 20 years, it does seem as the daily news on the uh, global warming climate change seem to be ever more um, convincing that there really is a, an extremely serious problem looming very, very large. I think a, a Green New Deal could be um, seen to be not something just for a, a few months, which might then peter out, but actually something which, which would have to be repeated and stepped up continually you know, over the years, next year, the year after that, and the year after that. So if, if the focus um, of the recovery could be on that, I think it would give individuals um, and companies confidence to invest in order to establish themselves in that area of the economy um, and, and invest to take part, if you like, in that uh, creation of, of green industries.